From the Los Angeles Times, welcome back to Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm one of your hosts, Jen Yamato. And on today's episode, I'm your other host, Johanna Buya. I'm a tech reporter at The Times. Thank you so much for joining me today, Johanna. It is great to have reporters from across this newsroom join the conversations this season. Yeah, I'm happy to do it, and I'm really excited to be here. I'm also really excited about today's guest. Like me, she's Filipina, she's a powerful woman, and she lives in the Bay Area. No need for introduction, you hear when you know why. No diving to an error with the beast of low fire. Put my face in the book as my people are profiled. Erased from the books and my people are told lies. Guys, the limit go fly. Cali Green, we go high. I mean, back in no fire. That song you're hearing right now? It's called Here, and it's the first single off rapper and poet Ruby Ibarra's full length album, Circa 91. She shot the music video for the song in the Philippines, which is where she was born. And in the Bay Area, where she and her family immigrated when she was four. When I was making music, a lot of it really involved just me trying to find my voice. Even as a young child, I never really felt that, you know, I belonged in the U.S. And at the same time, I never really felt that I belonged in the Philippines because I grew up over here. But music is just Ruby's side hustle. When she's not rapping about immigration, identity, and every brown Asian's favorite topic, skin whitening creams, she's working as a scientist at a Bay Area biotech company. A woman of many talents. Our conversation with Ruby Ibarra, scientist fighting COVID-19 by day, hip-hop artist by night, coming up in a sec. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's our conversation with rapper Ruby Ibarra. Thanks so much for joining us, Ruby. Hi, Johanna. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It really is an honor for me to be in this conversation, especially with Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month coming up. I'm pretty sure, you know, the conversation that we're about to have is going to be relevant to what's, what's been going on in this country. Yeah, definitely. We're really excited to have you here. Um, Speaking of being Asian American, you know, you're known around the world as rapper Ruby Ibarra, you know, Ruby Ibarra and the Balik Bayans. That's the name of your band. And so much of your music is centered on not just your Filipina identity, but this concept of being a Balik Bayan. And for our listeners who don't know what that is, it's it's basically, generally speaking, a, a Filipino expat. But there is this sort of larger obligation to feeling the need to give back to your home country or your family because you've left the country and sought out, you know, better economic opportunities and and things like that. But you came here when you were really young. At what point did you decide that this was something that you wanted to focus your music on? And and what does being a Balik Bayan mean to you? Those are really great questions to start off our conversation. To first answer how I got to the point in my artistry where I knew that I wanted to discuss or um, focus on, you know, my background and my heritage and my culture. Honestly, I don't think that really became a thought until my Circa 91 album. I think prior to that, when I was making music, a lot of it really involved just me trying to find my voice. When we think about the word identity, a lot of it really gets muddled and, you know, these thoughts of who am I and 
how how do I belong in the spaces that I'm in? These are, you know, constant thoughts that I had in my head, even as a young child. I never really felt that, you know, I belonged in the U.S. And at the same time, I never really felt that I belonged in the Philippines because I grew up over here. Um, and so I think my journey in finding my voice, it's really started in college. I attended UC Davis. And even though I majored in biochemistry, I took it on myself to take classes that were outside of the sciences, and one of them being Asian American studies. I remember my freshman year of college, um, as I was selecting the classes for the following semester, I was looking through the booklet on campus and Asian American studies, uh, specifically history, came up. And I thought, what? I did not know that this existed. I mean, prior to that, I think, you know, when I think about classes like history, that was the last class that I would have ever find myself being interested in. Flash back to prior to college, um, I was one of those Asian kids that took a bunch of AP and honors classes and one of them being um, AP history. And I remember by the end of that semester, I completely hated that class. Um, I had one of the lowest grades that I ever had in my entire high school career. And I thought, like, why am I learning about things that have nothing to do with me? I keep learning about white male from a white male narrative. And this does not reflect not only my history, but my, my family's history and the people that I know. Um, and so in college, I discovered that there was a class such as Asian American studies with a focus in history. I thought I'll give history a second chance and maybe I'll, I'll have a better interest in it. And so when I took that class, one of the assigned readings was this novel by an author named Carlos Bulosan. And the book was titled America's in the Heart. And I remember I, I took it back with me in my dorm and I began reading the book at 10 o'clock at night. And the next thing that I know, it's like one o'clock in the morning and I had read it like from cover to cover. And even though I grew up, you know, being such a big bookworm, being a fan of literature, I don't think I had ever read a piece of literature that made me feel seen. And I think honestly, that that was the novel that really opened up my eyes to, for the importance of storytelling in any form of media and feeling like, this is something that had been void in my life this entire time. I think, you know, when we think about things like representation and visibility, it really isn't until we come across something that I think that we, we realize that it had been missing our entire lives when it's finally presented to us. You know, after reading that book, I started thinking about things like, what if I had this growing up? Um, what if the books that I read uh, when I first started learning to read had characters that had Filipino names, had characters that had experiences that reminded me of my cousins? And I honestly felt like I had a newfound perspective, not only individually, personally, but also as an artist, because at that time I was already writing and performing poetry. And so I think subconsciously it made me realize that I wanted to create work that would give the same feeling to other people that Carlos Bulasan's book gave me. And so after reading that book and after um, taking other Asian American studies courses, I started incorporating a lot of the things that I had learned in those classes into some of my raps, you know, whether it was to also include um, my own experiences or also incorporating sometimes some Filipino history in some of the raps. You know, music, I think, is the most accessible form of media that exists in our culture. And ever since then, I've, I've made it a point really to always make sure that if I'm going to be rapping, if I'm going to be writing, that there's going to be intent behind it. I need to be intentional with my work. 
And so that's what I've been trying to do with my music ever since Circa 91 specifically is making sure that the music that I write not only represents me, but also represents the people that I make it for, which is the people in my community. You made a music video for your Circa 91 track, Us. That is entirely populated with Filipino women, and it is just the strongest image. It is a, a powerful image of femininity, unapologetic, multidimensional, and it brought me to tears just to see, just to see that community on screen, just to see those images. And uh, I was so moved by it because I, it reminds me of all the things that I wish that I had seen as a kid. There's a scene in 7,000 Miles Homecoming, the 2020 documentary about your band's journey back to the Philippines. And the whole room is erupting. My experiences and my family's experiences as first-generation Filipino-Americans. And as you can hear tonight, we are here to dismantle patriarchy. We're here to say, fuck colorism, because brown is beautiful. And we're here to celebrate all our beautiful brown Penai sisters, our Mestiza sisters, all our sisters from different backgrounds. Make some noise for all the Penai sisters. I'm like watching this. I'm like, yes, this this song is dope, but it's a feminist anthem, and the whole room is like, all, like jumping up and down. And I've never seen like men jump to a feminist anthem like that, especially in a place like the Philippines. Like you've talked about this in previous interviews, it is a patriarchal place. I mean, what does that feel like seeing something that was supposed to be this song to empower women erupt like that? That was such a surreal moment. Um, like you mentioned, um, you know, for the folks who haven't seen the Seven Thousand Miles docu film yet. Of course, with hip hop shows, it's still mostly you know populated by men. They, I think, make up for usually seventy percent of the audience at times, especially in Manila. And to see um, you know them singing along with the women in the crowd, um, rapping out of their chest, their lungs bursting, and you know s- singing along to the chorus, that to me was the truest, most rawest form of solidarity that I had seen, you know, physically like um, appear in front of me. And so, um, you know, even going into the Philippines, I had no idea how people would receive the music, especially because the experiences on that album do come from a specific Filipino-American lens. And so I thought, you know, are people going to be able to identify with this? But it was the complete opposite of that. And, you know, Filipinos worldwide do share, you know, similar struggles and experiences. And for me, you know, when we were making the Us video and even just the Us song, um, I had no idea it was at all going to even be labeled as an anthem. For me, honestly, I just wanted to create a song where it was just going to be women voices. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about even taking it out of the Philippines context where it's patriarchal, but just even in hip hop, women's voices are not usually, you know, front and center. And so I I wanted to, again, challenge that kind of notion as well. 
when I first heard some of your songs, like I'm half Filipina, like I would have been so hype as a kid if I heard any of these songs. Nobody even really knew what being Filipino was. On top of that, I'm multi-ethnic. So like nobody knows what I am when they look at me. But even, you know, the different Asian identities I have, like within the Asian community, Filipinos aren't seen or recognized often as AAPI because a lot of us are brown, right? Like, and I think it's been really great to hear some of those themes in your songs. Um, But another thing that you talk a lot about is just this immigrant story, right? And it's not the immigrant story that a lot of people focus on. It's the one where an immigrant comes to America for this promise of opportunity, but that opportunity, you know, it's not a road paved in gold. There is struggle and, and there are difficulties. Why did you feel such a responsibility to tell that story? I felt a responsibility because other artists um, locally fell into my radar and I was introduced to, you know, artists like Bamboo, who's from Los Angeles, or Rocky Rivera, and even Blue Scholars from Seattle, who are also all Filipino-American artists. And I remember downloading their music when I was younger and I wasn't really out there performing yet. And I thought, wow, there's Filipinos out there that are actually rapping. And and I thought... I. I just got hungry. I, I'm like, I need more of this. And it inspired me to want to be the actual artist on the microphone. And I thought there needs to be more of this. And um, there can only be more of it if individuals like myself take it on ourselves to to actually do it. So much of what you've said, even just so far, is so resonant. Asian Americans do not see their histories taught in textbooks, in schools. You, you kind of have to seek them out at a certain point in your life when you as a person take upon a self-education. But there's also the personal side to that, which is so often the family history, a person's family history is also hard to parse and to understand and to process. And so much of your rhymes really put your family's experience out there too. I wrote this album because I want my life to change. Tired of being shortchanged, I'm trying to remain sane. Hopped off the plane, didn't stop all the pain. My father's still in debt and we've been struggling to pay. I wonder how you came to learn about your parents' experiences and how to process that into your art. I was and I've always been such a nosy person. Um, you know, growing up, and, and I, I was just curious as a kid, you know, whether it was me taking interest in the sciences or just me taking interest in other people. I always wanted to know what was their experience like. And I I never really had an answer for, you know, why I had that thirst to know more about other people. For example, with my family, you know, specifically with my grandmother or my mother, we'd spend afternoons after school where I would just ask her question after question after question and just dig, dig, dig. Now that I think about it, actually, and I reflect back on it, I think it really was because there were no stories out there for me to even have an idea of what their experience might have been like. Like you mentioned, um, you know, for Asian Americans, we really rarely hear about or learn about our history. If, if at all, it will be a footnote. And so I think when it came to reflecting the stuff that I learned from my family into my music, I don't think that I really made that as a conscious decision. When I was first drafting Circa 91. I remember, I, th- I think I spent six months not even knowing how to start. I thought, okay, if I'm going to be making an album, 
I obviously want it to be good. And in order for it to be good, why don't I listen to the, the my favorite albums? And those albums were often Lauryn Hill's Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. A perfect album. Perfect album, right? A totally perfect <laughs> album. Um, Tupac's album, um, All Eyes on Me. Um, something more recent at the time was also uh, Kendrick Lamar's um, Good Kid, Mad City, which had just been released the year prior. After listening to these albums repeatedly, I think what I came to learn was there was one similar thread, you know, when it came to the themes amongst these albums, and that was the honesty, the vulnerability, and the storytelling, first and foremost. Not only were they telling stories, they were all honest and reflective about their past. You know, for example, take Lauren Hill's Miseducation of Lauren Hill. You hit play from the very first song, and by the end of the album, anyone who listens to that project feels like they know exactly who Lauren Hill is. They they can visualize all her experiences. They feel her emotions in every song. And I think, you know, after listening to that album and really studying it, I realized that if I'm going to be making a project, it needs to be reflective of my life. It needs to be authentic. It needs to be coming from a place of honesty. You know, when we think about music, especially when it comes to, to the genres of hip hop and pop, there's always going to be trends. Certain sounds, they come and go. But I think the the lyrics and the stories, those are the things that are going to be timeless because our lived experiences here on this earth are are, are always going to be cyclic. You know, the, the things that we're experiencing now in 2021 aren't that different um, in terms of um, personal and social experiences from the people that were living in the 1960s. All of us feel pain. All of us feel heartbreak. All of us feel a sense of belonging. And so, um, you know, when I was making Circa 91, I was very conscious of, of, of these things. And I wanted to make sure that not only was I creating a project where I wanted people to know who exactly the artist, who the artist was that they were listening to, but also to create a project that would um, last beyond my, my time on this earth. Yeah, for sure. And did, you know, one follow-up to that, I mean, how did your family feel about you being so vulnerable about their experiences? They were mad. They were like, why are you putting my dirty laundry on air? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, people will notice that there are skits throughout the project. I actually wrote the skits prior to the songs. I, I got into like my, my nerdy mindset. I was like, I'm going to attack this like an essay. And so I created an outline where I had a beginning, middle and end. But then um, I knew that the overarching theme would be my immigrant experience as a 1.5 generation Filipino-American. And um, in order to kind of create this story, I knew that I couldn't quite explain everything just through music alone. So I, I, I wrote skits out. These are, by the way, actual real life experiences that I went through. And for our listeners who maybe haven't heard Circa 91 yet, can you describe some of the skits for us? For example, the skit where the teacher mispronounces my name. Ruby and Belize. Ibarra? The skit where I got on the airplane and I'm I'm talking to a person who can't believe that I identify myself as an American. Cool. So uh, where are you from originally? Um, right now I live in San Lorenzo, the East Bay. Okay. But I mean like, you know, like before that, where are you from? Well, before San Lorenzo, I was living in Hayward. So yeah, I, but I've been living in the Bay Area for, for pretty much my entire life. Yeah, but you, where's your family from, I guess? Once I had these skits in order... I started creating songs that were related to those skits. For example, for the start of the, the first track on the album, which is Brown Out, the very beginning um, voice that you hear on that track is my mom's voice. 
Katina. It's hot outside. You and your sister will get dark. You'll get ugly if you're dark. These are the messages that were not only told to me from family members, but also in Filipino media specifically, whether I would turn on the TV and I would see skin lightening lotions and um, products being advertised to me. I remember when I, I recorded the skit with my mom, I kind of gave her the liberty to, to kind of improvise. And what she actually records on the album wasn't the script that I wrote for her. And um, I remember when we were going through that process of recording, my mom had no idea why I was asking her to record those things. Um, she thought that I was like trying to expose her or put her on blast or something like that. But I remember once um, the album was finally produced and I let her listen to it from beginning to end, she actually cried listening to it. And I think it was that she felt like this was our life story documented. And it was something that was personal. And I think if anything, my mom felt happy that, you know, there's this thing now that exists where it's recorded forever, where, you know, her story is out there. Because like I mentioned earlier, you know, when you think about what narratives are out there, whether it's in history or in fiction, um, no one usually cares in America what a 40-year-old Filipina American has to go through. That's not going to be the the main storyline of, of a Hollywood film. And so, you know, th this I think this was a, just a cool thing for my family and specifically my mom to have forever is to have her voice there and to have her story there. That's such a beautiful way to use your art to to have a communion with your mom and and share that. Not only like inviting her into your process, but reflecting her experience. And by the way, those skits, they were so hilarious, but also like painfully hilarious because I've never related harder to skits in a rap album than these. These are questions and microaggressions and macroaggressions that everybody has has experienced in this community. And it was just wild to me, you know? <laughs> yeah, my titas and titos still tell me not to go outside. I'm the darkest cousin in the family. Let's get that straight. And so I'm still getting those questions. So yeah, I mean, all of those hit hit home really hard. As we follow the trajectory, so check the text that I left from me. I do this till the death of me, but I'm fruitless in my victory. I'm losing myself in my history. Because all of these systems are More of our conversation with Ruby Ibarra coming right up. Stay with us. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's more of our conversation with Ruby Ibarra. So Ruby, you were asked a lot about being a musician and about your art, but maybe not as much about your other career in science, in biotech. So we'd love- Your side gig. <laughs> your side hustle in science. <laughs> so tell us why science? Why was that such a huge track for you? Why was that a path that you chose to go down and how would you describe the work that you're doing right now? So I grew up in the 90s. I think it was Bill Nye, the science guy existing at the time and having his own TV show. I remember being in elementary school and uh, one of my science teachers, you know, playing his videos in class. And um, I was like, who is this guy? Like, he's so quirky. Um, he's so informative. And he has music to implement it in his teaching. And it was just, this is actually pretty cool. And, you know, that made me more engaged and wanting to learn about. And so when I took classes as I got older, especially when I got into high school and, you know, I took things like chemistry, 
to be honest with you, it was also a subject that I felt like I was good at. For some reason, it just it just clicked for me. Seeing the periodic table, putting together these formulas, I'm like, this is fun. <laughs> you know, when when it came to picking a major for college at UC Davis, it was a no-brainer for me. I, I knew that I wanted to get into the science field. And I think at the time, too, I was also pre-med, um, being Asian-American, being Filipino. There's already kind of this path that's kind of expected for you, right? Whether you go towards the engineering path or you go towards the nursing slash medical field. And for me, I was like, okay, well, I love science. Why don't I try to become a pediatrician? And so when I, I got into college and um, I took organic chemistry, that's pretty much the make it or break it of whether or not you're going to continue on to med school. And I think that that gave me the answer was like, yep, I, I don't think I'm going to be a doctor. I don't think I'm cut out for it. It was just very intensive. And, you know, even though I, I love science, I already knew that I also love music at the same time. I just want to give a shout out to my mom real quick, by the way. She, she's such an amazing person and she's always been my biggest cheerleader, um, biggest supporter, especially when it comes to my artistry. You know, back in high school, I was deciding which school to go to. She was the one who brought up to me, like, why don't you go to school for music? She even looked up one of the schools, I think it was in Florida, where it, it solely focuses on music production. And she said, I found this school. Like, why don't you try that out? And I think me being the weird person that I am, I, I thought of it as like reverse psychology. I was like, no, I'm going to have a backup plan. I'm going to get a, my degree in science. I'm going to go major in biochemistry, molecular biology. And um, I, I share that to say that, you know, my mom has always had my back and has always also acknowledged, you know, my interest and helped cultivate and nurture, you know, that passion as well. You know, that was the reason why I, I went into science. And the work that I do now um, with that degree is I am currently a scientist at a, at a biotech company. And I've been working there for the past five years. You know, to be honest with you both, um, initially, I, I, I did get that job to use it as a place to fund my main career, which is music. I thought, OK, well, I have this degree. Why don't I get a nine to five and whatever money I get? I'll use that to buy equipment. I'll use that to pay gas money, hotels while I was still trying to build my career and I wasn't getting funded in those things. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't until I think just in the last year alone in 2020, as we all know, you know, with the pandemic, it's flipped our entire worlds upside down. And, you know, on the other side of that, it also gave me a different perspective now of, of what I do in the lab. Uh, my company, specifically my department, has been helping with COVID-19 research, and that's through the test kits and, and now, of course, with the vaccine. And so we work with coronavirus assays on a daily basis, and um, I, I do quality control testing in my department. You know, I, I want to give this brief moment also to, to shout out all the scientists that are out there, all the people, especially in the medical and nursing field as well, the frontliners. I think that, you know, they're really the heroes that's allowed us to, to continue moving forward in these dark times. Yeah, I mean, that that's a, a great segue into a question we wanted to ask you. I mean, the medical field, as you said before, is seen among Filipinos as, as such an honorable one. It's an industry or a career path that people are really pushed toward, both because of the honor and the duty to others, but also because of the potential economic opportunity and the stability that it would provide. And, you know, we're seeing at the height of the global pandemic that, you know, there's a disproportionate impact that's happening on Filipinos, specifically Filipino nurses. Filipino nurses only make up 4% of the total population of nurses in the U.S., but make a third of those who have passed away. I mean, how do you how do you make sense of, of, of that? It's, it is devastating to know that, you know, so many 
of the members of our community are in the nursing field. And I'm, I'm fortunate that here in the U.S., we're kind of finally seeing, you know, the light to the end of that tunnel. Um, but I remember, you know, turning on the news, reading articles, and I'd see the experiences that nurses had to go through. And a lot of them, of course, like you mentioned, being Filipino-Americans that are in those fields, I can't help but think about nurses in my family, you know, with a lot of them being aunts. And, um, you know, just thinking about also the the Filipino-American community, the Asian-American community, and just communities of color, I think, have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. And a lot of that has to do with um, access to resources. Um, a lot of the members in our community don't have access to health care. I think, if anything, what this pandemic has exposed is a lot of those inequalities. I know the situation right now in the Philippines, from what I last read, was that the lockdown right now is actually the most strict, most harsh that it's ever been in this entire pandemic. And it's just unfortunate that, you know, a country like the Philippines, are, are, they're still struggling. And I hope that we'll see a shift in that very soon. You mentioned the impact that the Filipino community is feeling right now, the AAPI community is feeling right now. There's this huge uptick this last year in hate crimes, not just on Asian Americans, but Asian Americans in the Bay Area and elderly and the most vulnerable. And it's been so hard for me to watch. Uh, I see my grandparents and my parents in the faces of every one of these news reports. I wanted to ask you about how you use your platform because this past year you have really used your platform and your voice outside of your music to draw attention to so many of the social issues that are clearly important to you, judging from your music. like How do you see your responsibility or how do you see your opportunity to use your platform in times like this? This last year, as as you both, um, I'm sure you can agree, is, it's been completely heavy. I mean, on one hand, we have this pandemic that's um, taken so many lives. Um, a lot of us have lost relatives, have lost friends, community members. And on the other side of that, I think, you know, we've kind of opened up the curtains even more in this country and exposed, you know, the ugly truths that systemic racism does exist, you know, in this country, it still exists. You know, obviously with the rhetoric of the previous um, person in office and using Kung flu and things like that, I think that's definitely um, contributed to a lot of the xenophobia that we've seen affect the Asian American community. And of course, it's completely disappointing and disheartening um, one of the things that I did last year when we started seeing a rise in anti-Asian hate was I collaborated with the Smithsonian Museum for a weekly series and we discussed the topic of xenophobia. We highlighted Asian American history and we really had critical discourse around racism. You know, I think we need to remember that when we think about racism, specifically um, Asian American racism in this country, it really isn't new. You know, it's happened historically and cyclically in this country. It's important for me to also be part of campaigns and events that have centered around bringing light to these issues, because even though now we see people galvanizing in our communities and feeling charged up to, to speak out, there needs to be more. We not only it's not just going to take discussions, it's really going to take our entire collective community to dismantle a lot of these things that are heavily deep seated in this country. There's so many more incidents out there that aren't going to be highlighted on the news that, you know, fall under the radar. 
And so this is why I think, you know, I, ha I have such a strong advocate for implementing ethnic studies in schools. Like we mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, you know, this void um, being a footnote, I think all of that too has led to the things that um, we're seeing to this day, why there's so much hate. We still are seen as the other, as seen as foreigners, seen as different. And um, it's because of the sphere of the other that a lot of that hate, where it comes from. You have used your platform in the past to talk about Black Lives Matters and, and speaking up for justice for Black lives. Um, you know, and hip hop and rap is something that is rooted in Black culture. I mean, how do you navigate that relationship? Do you feel like you sort of owe it to the music industry, the genre that you are participating in to speak up for Black lives? Absolutely. I think as an Asian American artist in hip hop, it is 100% my responsibility to speak out against police brutality, to speak out against anti-Black racism, to, to stand for Black Lives Matter. When I think about my, my positionality in hip hop, I am 100% aware that I'm just a guest in this space. You know, this is a culture, this is a genre that is created by the Black community. And I, 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 I'm always mindful of the space that I take up and, and making sure that whatever I do, whatever I say in my music, um, is to respect the artist that created it and opened up the doors for me to even be on that stage. And so it definitely is my responsibility, um, whether it's in music or outside of music, to make sure that I'm using my platform to make sure that, you know, I'm creating discourse and creating dialogue around that. I think to a lot of people listening to your music right now, you're going to be a really influential figure because there's so few women in rap. There's so few Asian American women in hip hop. Given the fact that you've also then taken control of the images that you put out, like in your music videos, I love these strong images. Like, why is it so important for you to, to like really fortify this image of an Asian woman in hip hop? For me, at the end of the day, as an artist, I think what's most important to me is that I have artistic control. I feel like the, the the discussion of representation hasn't really been brought into the mainstream until like the last couple of years. I've, I've always felt that if I don't write my story for myself, who's going to write it? And and so I'm also conscious about the media that I consume, um, whether it's Asian American music or specifically Asian American films, making sure that this media that's put out there, I always question it. Is it made by Asian Americans if it's for Asian Americans? I think that authenticity, again, needs to be there. And um, I, I don't think that I would feel like I truly existed if I didn't feel like I had something that was permanent. And I think um, as an artist, the art that we create is the most permanent thing that, that, that we can create to, to exist. Also, when it comes to having um, creative control over my music videos and my music, that's also very important for me, making sure that I have control of my image because for so many of us, not only have our stories been not told, have been void, but also altered. I mean, you know, when you think about how Asian Americans have been portrayed throughout history in um, American mainstream, whether it's Fu Manchu and these other stereotypical Im imagery of Asian Americans, it's always been, you know, from the perspective of how other people perceive us to be. And to me, it's very important that I challenge that notion that whatever image people see of me, whatever voice, history, perspective people hear from me, that it, it really is coming from me. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, yeah, it, it's great to talk to someone who's who's kind of at the forefront of this. Again, it, you know, as a kid, not having someone who is speaking about just being Asian generally, but Filipina specifically, I think, you know, I was at a disadvantage. You know, you don't really know what identity to hold on to because there aren't really representations of who you are on TV or, or in your songs. Okay, as we wrap, Ruby, um, can you give us an update on your album that you've been working on? So I've been working hard at it, of course. Um, I think the silver lining in uh, this lockdown for me has been um, being confined in this studio space. You know, I've been dedicating hours on a weekly basis and um, I am I'm putting myself to it to release this album before the end of the year. And so people can expect to hear new music from me, especially I think we're, we're aiming for Filipino American History Month this year. So that'll be in October. What I'm really most excited about with this upcoming project is that, um, of course, the storytelling, the lyricism will still be there. But now that I feel like I've told my life story in an album like Circa 91, as an artist, I have the opportunity and the space to explore and to experiment. And so what people can expect is definitely more musicality in this next album, especially with me working with the Balik Bayans, the band. I think that's also opened up my eyes to realizing how beautiful live instrumentation is so people can hear live guitars, live drums on this next album. And I promise um, once I have something more uh, solid um, to kind of preview, you two will be among the first to hear it. Oh, awesome. I'm excited. (laughs) October is... Not too far away. So it is my birthday oh, month. Hey. So it'll be a happy birthday <laughs> gift to me. <laughs> it'll be Johanna's birthday present. <laughs> yeah. It's time for a segment that we're calling Asian Enough Confessions. I have like Super Mario music in my head as I'm saying this. <laughs> Asian Enough Confessions is a segment in which we share times where we haven't felt Asian enough or we've been made to feel not Asian enough. There are a lot of instances, but I guess, I mean, one of my bad Asian confessions is I'm married to a white man. <laughs> um, so That's okay. My children, That's okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, my, I'm, I'm multi-ethnic. So I'm half Bangladeshi, half Filipina. And so now that my husband is white, if we have kids, our kids are going to be even less Bengali and Filipina than me. And then every generation after that is going to be less and less Filipina and Bengali. And then the chances of them marrying a white person are probably high because there are so many white people. And and so I, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, this concept of passing on your culture and your identity to your children now that I'm diluting mine. Um, so... You know, I'm as a multi-ethnic person, it's you constantly ask yourself if you're Asian enough always because you don't know what your identity is and you don't know which part of your identity you hold on to. And now I'm just like, I'm I don't know, I'm screwing my future generations over. They're just gonna be so confused. No. <laughs> no, Joanna, they're not because you are conscious of it and you are thoughtful of it, and so will they be. Yeah. Well, I mean, my other not Asian enough confession is I can speak Bengali, but I only know like a few words in Tagalog. I'm like, Alikana. Like I can tell you to come and eat, I can go shopping. And that's pretty much all I can do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so yeah, my children are not gonna be learning Tagalog unless they learn from their Lola. So we'll we'll see what happens. Those are the, the those are the two most important activities <laughs> yeah. anyway. So you're fine. <laughs> Um, Ruby, do you want to go next? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so when I think about not feeling Asian enough, I think it all, it's also with language. Um, where I'm from in the Philippines, I'm from this small island called the Visayas. 
And in my household, I was taught um, our dialect um, or our language, um, which is called Warai. And that's the language that I rap in in my song Playbill is on the, on the second verse in Warai. So even though I knew what I, um, the national language in the Philippines or what most people in the country speak is Tagalog, and I have never been able to fully hold a conversation in Tagalog without me like sweating bullets and getting all nervous and stuff. And, the, you know, that's my experience is every time I go back home and I try to speak with my cousins. And um, especially as, as a young kid, um, I would hear my parents speak in Tagalog. Um, they would talk to us in Tagalog, but I could never respond to them. And I remember there was always multiple times where um, we would be at a family party or we'd have visitors over and um, older Filipinos would always make a, a comment around that, asking my, my parents, how come your kids, um, how come they don't know how to speak Tagalog? And then, I, and then hearing that kind of um, criticism, it always made me feel like I'm not Filipino enough unless I know how to speak Tagalog. And, but I, I have come to realize that, you know, F that, that alone shouldn't be, you know, the, the sole marker of whether or not I'm Filipino or not, because... I think that's what makes Philippines beautiful. The fact that there's like 7,000 islands in that country and there's such a diverse, you know, amount of communities and also languages there. I've come to embrace, you know, the, the diversity in the country alone. And on the flip side of that, um, if, if I can share also, there's been times that I never felt Filipino enough, but there's also been times where I didn't feel American enough as well. And when I was first starting out as an artist and I would record myself in my home studio, you know, this is sad now to reflect on and to, to even mention, but when I was first starting to make music, I would record a take, I would listen to it in my headphones. And if I heard a slight accent, just even a slight accent, I would re-record that take again mm. because I didn't want to, to sound like a fob. I, it, it really took years. It took having to take ethnic studies. It took having to come into my own identity and learn about myself, learn about my culture for me to realize that what I was doing was self-hate. You know, that was assimilating to the very same racism that I've been trying to combat my entire life. That's something that, of course, I embrace now. But um, I'm sure that, you know, there's people out there, too, who 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 might be listening and might feel like, you know, I, I'm embarrassed about my accent, but y'all should embrace it. That's what makes you you. I love the Filipino accent. It reminds me of my mom. It reminds me yeah. of Iloko. It's like, I, I can't get enough of it. And then when I hear people with a Filipino accent, especially since I live in San Francisco, the Bay Area is diverse. San Francisco is not. And so if I hear a Filipino accent on the street, I will run across the street to try to find that person and talk to them. <laughs> what you shared about, um, you know, being self-critical about hearing the accent in your voice really resonates with me because I feel a real distance from my ancestors' culture. Being fourth generation in, you know, I don't speak Japanese. Um, my parents didn't speak Japanese, but they could understand it when their parents spoke to them. So over generations, it was lost. Uh, not that it necessarily has to be lost. For, for other people, it's not the same case, but that was the case with, with me. And... It took me a long time to realize that this idea of FOB, which stands for fresh off the boat, 
the feeling that I needed to like lean into an Americanness and lean away from my Asianness was something that was never really processed or parsed out or talked about when I was growing up. And it's something that I have a lot of mournful feelings about now. Um, nobody ever told me that it was like, okay, to embrace all of it, you know? So I have a lot of sadness about like the younger version of myself and the way that I know that I used to look at the world and my place in it. So uh, to hear you say that and to hear you kind of like uh, implode it, like blow that up, it really feels very powerful to me. Do you have an Asian enough confession you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. And maybe we'll even play it on the show. Yes, please call us and let us know and help us feel better about our own Asian Enough confessions. Now that's it from us. Special thanks to our guest, Ruby Ibarra, and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jenny Amato, and by my wonderful colleague, Johanna Buya. Our producer is Asal Asanapur, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, and Ben Musig. The songs that you heard in today's episode come courtesy of Ruby Ibarra and DeWolf Music. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar, who helped us launch Asian Enough. Join us next week for another episode of Asian Enough, where Jen and Times Entertainment reporter Tracy Brown return with a conversation with novelist Min Jin Lee. The fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that we have this podcast at a major platform like the Los Angeles Times means that people are saying, hey, I'll do it. I'll stick my neck out and I'll be a little extra Asian. And I'm going, you know what? It's nice. (laughs) We talk about her novels and so much more. That's all on next week's show. See you then. Bye, Jen. Bye-bye, Johanna. And remember to thank all the frontline workers out there. They're really the heroes that's allowed us to continue moving forward in these dark times. 